You are listening to the Ortho Idea Podcast, where we bring you the newest trends in orthopedic technology. Tune in for engaging interviews with medical device executives, surgeons, and surprise special guests discussing new disruptive technology in the marketplace. Here is your host, Eric Anderson. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Ortho Idea Podcast. My name is Eric Anderson. I'll be your host today. And today I am honored to have Dr. Robert Medoff on the podcast today. His list of accomplishments is incredible. And not to mention one of them being the godfather of fragment specific plating. And so I am truly honored to have him on the podcast today and have him talk about the origins of fragment specific plating and, and bring us from those times and in his initial thoughts to where we are today. And so without further ado, Dr. Madoff, how are you today? I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming. And again, it is a great honor for you to come onto the podcast and talk about your thoughts on fragment-specific plating, how you, the origins of fragment-specific plating. And again, your accomplishments are in, in your, your CV is tremendous, but I know several people listening to the podcast know who you are, but if you could just give a little bit of background on yourself and you know some of the history of leading up to fragment-specific plating. All right. Well, the first thing I want to I want to address is that it's actually not called fragment-specific plating, but rather called fragment-specific fixation. And there's a reason that that term came up in in its evolution. So my interest in this area started back in probably five to five, eight years out of my surgical training when I was out in practice. And we were doing a lot of new things. Arthroscopy had just come out, femoral nails had just come out. And patients, some of my patients were a little frustrated that when we we had a really complex intraarticular fracture of the distal radius, I actually had a patient look at me one day and go, you know, after I explained how difficult it was and how she might not end up with a great result, she looked at me and she said, you know, Dr. Medoff, I like you, but we can send guys to the moon. It's just a wrist fracture. Why can't you fix this? So I had been thinking about this and playing around with different approaches. And at the time, the main way we fixed this was to just throw a lot of pins in wherever we could and to apply some form of external fixation, whether it was a true external fixator or it was back then before we had external fixators, we used something called pins and plaster where we would just put the pins in the bone and, and put a cast around the pins and use the, the cast as the external fixation frame. And that has some benefits, particularly the multiple pins gives you the ability to look for individual pieces that you can put back together again. But it occurred to me that it would make more sense if we could completely improve the rigidity of that fixation so that as we were securing each of those multiple major fragment components in the fracture, we could end up with a situation where we had enough fracture stability to start motion, mobilize the soft tissues early, restore the anatomy, and still respect the blood flow. And so the idea was to take some of the advantages of the methods we were using before and combine them 
with a technique where we could individually fix each fragment with a with a custom implant. I needed to give it a name because it's different from standard AO fixation, plating, nailing, pin fixation. So the most descriptive term that I could think of at the time was fragment-specific fixation because we were tailoring each fixation to each fractured component. Well, thank you very much for the explanation. And I do remember I back years ago before fragment-specific fixation, I do remember the small AO synthes fixator. And, and as you were saying, that was the mode of treatment or the, the chosen form of treatment back the small external fixator. At what point did you decide, did you say to yourself, hey, this is the, you know, these distal radius fractures are just, it was a stiffness or what was it? Obviously your patients were coming back to you and not getting the range of motion they wanted. What, what was the aha moment? Yeah, I mean, for the relatively, I say, simple distal radius fractures, namely what we call extra-articular fractures, which are mostly bending injuries, sometimes with some dorsal comminution, what AO would classify as the A-type injuries, the older methods actually still work relatively well. I mean, just putting pins in a cast is a very effective form of treatment. At the time, I didn't think anybody would ever open these fractures, although That has shifted a lot because there are certain advantages of fixation with the early mobilization and return to work, the avoidance of pin track problems and the such. But we did have a solution for that. It was these complex articular fractures that I really felt, and this this was pretty pervasive through the area of uh, hand surgery, that these fractures weren't going to do well. They were going to end up with stiffness, arthritis, but we... We would blame that on the fracture, not on the fact that we didn't know how to fix it. So we thought that this was those results were just faded to the patient. Once they had that fracture, they were doomed to have this type of limited uh, function after they recovered, and things wouldn't look the way they were supposed to. So the first big step was just looking at it and saying, you know, this is a limitation of the methods we have, not intrinsic to the injury itself and to recognize that there was a possibility that we could fix these and they would do better. When I first came up with these concepts, my anticipation was that I might improve the results in half of the individuals. And I thought that was going to be great. As it turns out, as I started to use it, 90, 95% of the individuals were getting terrific results with it. So that was one obstacle to overcome. The second was that in the late 80s and the early 90s, there were, it was almost considered malpractice to operate on a distal radius fracture. These were injuries that were by and large, except for a few exceptions, were considered problems where close management without making an incision was the method of choice. And that if you open them, you would only open a can of worms and make things worse for the, for the patient. So when I started operating on these, I had, I've had i had surgeons come up to me in, those, in that early period of time and say, you know, I think this is malpractice to actually open a distal radius. My, how things have changed over the last 20 years, you know, when everybody pretty much gets an operation right now. And you could argue that maybe too many get surgery when they don't necessarily need it. But that was the second big obstacle to overcome to sort of take a leap of faith that I'm going to operate to try to do better for these people and see what see what happens. 
And then the initial experience with this method, and we developed, you know, different implants, different surgical approaches, a different way of looking at the fracture and analyzing it to determine how the fixation should progress and which fragments had to be stabilized in order to find a, a stable construct of, of all of them, because they all have to work together. If there's one left out, it's not going to work. And I had been doing cases for about two years, and I had one patient I remember who came in who had bilateral distal radius fractures. On one side, she had a very complex intraarticular C3, we call, fracture of the involving the joint. And on the other side, she had a very simple extra-articular fracture that I had mentioned before. And so I suggested to her that we fix the complex one because the results were not going to be that good, whatever we did, and this might improve it, and that we treat the extra-articular one with a standard cast method. At that time and still to this day, when I fix an intra-articular fracture with fragment specific, my goal is to get enough stability that I can start mobilization the next day. I don't know if that's necessary. I mean, people do well if you immobilize them for two weeks, but it certainly makes a big psychological difference for them to be able to come out of their brace on the day after surgery and start to move their fingers and the wrists. And I still feel that it really accelerates their rehabilitation. It accelerates getting them back. And I still do the same thing I did back then. So with this lady, we started her mobilization from her complex fracture the day after surgery. And I don't ask them to play piano, but they can move their fingers, they can eat with it, they can write with it, they can type with it. And she came back at her one-month follow-up visit and was just getting out of the cast on her other side. And her complex side was back to normal. She had full motion of the fingers, her strength was back, her form rotation was normal. And her right side was coming out of the cast. Her fingers were stiff. Her wrists were stiff. She had trouble with supination. And I said, you know, I'll have to do a little therapy to get this back. And she looked at me like I was a lunatic and said, why didn't you fix this side? I thought this was the easy side. You just fix the bad side. And I had two more patients like that. And it made me recognize that this really was beneficial. The patients were telling me they liked it. They liked it better. And it was a very, very useful method of treatment. Well, thank you for that. And out of curiosity, when you decided on the implants that, and want to tell the audience, you're one of the co-founders of TriMed, but were were you making these implants? How are you manufacturing these implants and how are you doing that? Or where were you doing that as well? Yeah. So the way this sort of transpired was when I was a orthopedic fourth year resident, I came up with an idea for intertrochanteric hip fractures. And I tried to get various different companies interested in making it. And unfortunately, I couldn't find anybody to make it. And after a couple of years, I sort of forgot about it. And then my older brother, who was in the aerospace industry, called me and said, you know, let's try to, let's try to make a go of this. We'll make the implants, which we did. We tested them and tested good. We went back to the big companies. They again told us they weren't interested. And then we eventually decided, hey, we'll, we'll just try to do it on our own. So we applied for the FDA by ourselves. We found our own manufacturers and we made a a company that made this compression hips, this type of actually compressing hips group. 
that was picked up by some Swedish investors, which we thought would help us with the money management. And they got cold feet after three years and decided they wanted to get out. So they ended up selling that organization. But we had hooked up with another individual out of Sweden at that time. So there were there were three of us when, when that company got transferred to another entity and we were sort of out of it. And that was about the same time I had come up with this idea for fragment-specific fixation. So I went back to the two guys who had been working with me in that company and I said, look, I got a good idea here. I think we can make a go of it. We all mortgaged our houses and didn't take any salaries and, you know, put blood, sweat, tears and our our life just work into it and just, you know, starting this from scratch on our own. And our concept was number one, to make sure it was effective, that it worked, that it really was something that was of value in the field of orthopedic surgery and hand surgery. Number two was to make sure that when we started commercializing it, a lot of companies you see will come up with a new product, push it real hard for five years. It sort of gets a lot of interest and builds real quickly. And then, you know, they lose interest and uh, they go on to something else. But that's not the concept we had. We wanted to find a base of real opinion leaders and teachers and guys doing a lot of surgery who could get some practice and understand the concepts and the techniques and the implants and then leverage them to help train, you know, new docs coming up and other guys out in the field. So our motivation was just to make a slow, steady climb, then just try to make a big splash and, and sell a company off. And so we, over the years, step by step, just been increasing. It took us about five years before we were actually generating enough revenue that we were really making a profit and it was stopped coming out of our own uh, pockets. But that's how that's how it got started. Well, it's a true success story, and and as I say to other people all the time, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And now, when you look in the marketplace, you probably chuckle because several companies speak of fragment-specific plates. They talk about it in several of TriMet's competitors, which is interesting. So when you take an organization or or a concept, let's say a concept from the beginning where you thought it was malpractice to, it is now there are others imitating your thought process and what you originated. That must be an honor. Well, in some ways, it's a little, you say I chuckle about it. And the problem is, is that you know, it's nice that they've tried they've tried to use the term, but unfortunately, it seems that they none of them went to any of the training sessions because they don't understand what fragment-specific is. They don't know what the four principles of fragment-specific is. And so they advertise and market implants that are not fragment-specific as being fragment-specific. So with that, maybe I should just... I should just go over what is fragment-specific fixation. We use the term and what's the definition of it? And I have sort of a unique perspective on this because at the end of the day, I was the one who made the term up. To tell you sure. the truth, I, I never really liked it. I thought it was a little bit too awkward. You know, it was too many syllables and words, but I couldn't break it down in anything simpler. So when I talk about fragment-specific, what I mean is I mean a, an approach or a philosophy for complex articular fractures where, number one, you're identifying what the major fracture components are. So you have to be able to identify those, recognize them, and know which ones you have present in any specific condition so you know how you're going to address it and what type of instability. 
Number two, you want to provide independent fixation of each of those primary fracture components using an implant that's specific for fixating that particular component as a part of the whole. So these implants all work together. Just having one and not the others doesn't doesn't work. The number three is is that the implants use a semi-elastic principle of fixation. A semi-elastic mechanism has to be part of the implant. And the reason for this is that you can't use screw threads in very small periarticular fragments. It doesn't work. So the fragment-specific implants, by and large, you see, will not rely on any type of thread purchase in the periarticular fragment. The only threads that are used are in the, in the stable shaft segment of the implant. And number four in fragment-specific is at the end of the day, you're looking to create a load-sharing construct. So that's where the semi-elastic fixation mechanism comes in. Just like a band around a barrel brings all the, all the wooden barrel staves together to create a solid unified structure. No, none, of, none of those little pieces of wood would, would stay in place unless you had that band constricting it and bringing them all together. And the load is taken by the bone, not the implant. So when I see you know, somebody come out when they call it a fragment-specific implant and it's a small bone fixation plate with screws on either end, it's not a fragment-specific implant. They can, they using the term in an incorrect method and it just shows that they don't understand what the principles are. And they're back to the standard plates and screws methods for those difficult fractures. Well, and, and, and it's interesting, and thank you for laying out the, the four principles, because that's very important as to why the implants you designed are, are, are so effective. And I just, you know, I remember back when I was a young salesperson and the AO, the, the pie plates came out and, you know, obviously there was the AO T plates that were, were available, the old plate and screw configurations and obviously fragment specific Fixation is dramatically different in those regards, and as far as as volar for distorratus plating uh, goes, what do you see for the future for fragment specific fixation? Do you envision more iterations of the plates, or w- where do you see it going? Well, the greatest experience for fragment specific fixation we've had is with the distal radius, and that's where it was designed. Again, the volar plates are really good at certain types of fractures. They're not good at others. Fragment-specific is really good for certain types of fractures, and it breaks down with other types of patterns. So it's really that distal, terminal, periarticular type of pattern where fragment-specific fixation has its, has its role. But there are two areas where I think there's room for movement. One is just to simplify the implants that we have to find simpler techniques for applying them and to try to, when we started, we gave, we gave surgeons a lot of options in terms of which implants they had available because we didn't know how many lengths you would need or what sizes you'd need and that type of thing. And as, as the experience has grown over the years, we've realized that you can actually do a lot with just a few select implants. You don't need 20 implants, four or five will address 95% of fractures. So that's one area is to just try to simplify the makeup. And curiously, that's by removing certain options that we've had available but don't get used all that often. 
The second area where I see this changing is, is that this is really a philosophy of periarticular fixation. It was born out of the inability, the breakdown, if you will, of the standard AO techniques when applied to periarticular fractures with small fragments. And their only fallback with that is, is the use of an interfrag screw. And as I said, you know, you have problems with thread purchase, the bone saucio product, you don't have a stable cortex to grab on the other side. You drill a big screw hole in a small fragment and you create two or three small fragments. That's not going to help anybody. So that's where AO and synthes break down. They've had some huge contributions in the field of orthopedics, but they don't cover everything. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to apply these same four core concepts of fragment-specific fixation to articular fracture patterns in different areas of the body. And we've done some of that in the ankle, where we're looking at the different patterns of injury, what are the type of fracture components, and used a variety of sleds or the sidewinder plate, which has these semi-elastic tabs that act to change a short oblique fracture from a load-bearing to a load-sharing type of construct. So I think over time, this is going to be utilized in other areas. Well, and thank you for mentioning the foot and ankle applications because TriMed does have a full foot and ankle fixation system that's wonderful, as well as a new one that is just coming to market, a, a foot fixation set that it's going to be very well received and has been so far. And so... And again, if any of these different products, if you'd like to take a look at them, you can visit trimedortho.com and, and see all these different products that in, the, in the marketplace. And so I wanted to, to ask you, and again, thank you for, for all this information about fragment-specific fixation. And it's, it's as you, and again, as I said, the imitation in the marketplace of, of your concept shows just the, the market acceptance. And so... All of this information that you've given us tonight, I really appreciate you doing that and coming on. And and I wanted to tell the audience as well, you know, obviously you're still a practicing orthopedic surgeon. You live in Hawaii. You were running a little bit behind to come to this session because you still, you were, you were, had a, a fracture that you had to address today. And so if you were to look at your crystal ball for the future, and I know you obviously can't say much about different projects, but what do you see for TriMed and yourself in the future? You know, I've been honored to be part of TriMed and I'm I'm happy to have been able to contribute along with my two partners, the ability to try to move an orthopedic company forward where, I mean, we want to have a successful company. We want to be successful for our sales force. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's all about having products that fill a need that nobody else has. And I've always been frustrated with trying to bring a new idea or a new concept into the market that the the major orthopedic companies are not not as interested in that. They'd rather, you know, just pursue the things that have have done well for them. And I don't fault them for that. But our focus at TriMet has always been to try to really look at game-changing intelligence solutions. We want people to look at our implants and instruments or sets and go, you know, that's a really smart idea. I, I get it. I wonder why nobody has done this before. And so we try to focus on that on that area. I keep having people tell me that TriMed has sold. 
that they think that we're on this on the sale block. And my first question is always, "Oh, what did? How much did we get?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you would probably uh, know it. Well, I would think so. Yeah, I would hope so. But we haven't had, we're just not interested. We've got too many projects going on that we'd like to see move forward. And these have been some pretty exciting times. One of the things that's been a little bit frustrating is is that the regulatory environment with the FDA and the amount of paperwork and stuff is completely different from what it was 20 years ago to the point where we had to take sort of a step back and to funny story to maintain, hope I don't get in trouble for this, to maintain compliance with the FDA. I had to go back to TriMed a couple of years ago and validate that our fragment specific implants, which have been on the market for 20 years and have countless papers and shown to be effective and efficacious and, and safe. I had to go back and put them on cadavers so I could write up a a form for the FDA to say that it was validated because back then that requirement didn't exist. And so we had to fill in the, the documentation that they had said was necessary, but we didn't have. So now to bring something to market takes a lot longer than it did back then. And I think if I had come up with fragment specific fixation in 2020 and faced with the same sort of set of circumstances, it's hard for me to imagine how we would have ever gotten TriMed started with all the regulatory hurdles that are there now for the new people. So I think it's important that we maintain the company going to provide an avenue where we can have surgeons you know, develop smart products. I'm very, very optimistic that we're going to – we have some great stuff I think that's going to be coming out in the next year or two that's – that's going to be very well received. And I see this company just growing bigger and bigger. Well, thank you for that. And, and I can tell you as a, a distributor extremity surgical, we're excited about the products that are coming to market. It's an honor to work with TriMed and, and all the innovative products. And one of the things that was fantastic that, that happened, well, we're going through the pandemic as we speak, but there were several educational webinars that occurred and some things you did as a company that really assisted the sales force out in the field. So I wanted to thank you for that as well. That was very well done. And another thing is, is we try to run the, I mean, we, our approach to TriMed is, is it's a family company. We feel that the people we work with, both the surgeons, the salespeople, the engineers, it's kind of a family business. We, we feel an obligation for everybody to help take care because we don't have the big, huge corporate funding that's available. So we have to work smart. So I think that's a nice change from the sort of corporate environment where you have the type of organization where, you know, people talk to each other and your friends, you pick up the phone and there's a lot of conversation going. Well, and I think that's very important for innovation and and for the future of TriMed. So, and being someone out in the field, and you're right, I'm able to pick up a a phone and, and talk to somebody who can give an answer or a thought or a concept, or even call one of the co-founders and have them come on a podcast like we're doing right now. So that's pretty important. So I, I want to thank you for doing this. And again, it was a an honor for you to come on for, for me to, for you to come on the Ortho Idea podcast. And so I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and I never prompt anybody before asking this question, and which should be an interesting answer because I, I know you have a wonderful place you live in Hawaii. But if you were not an orthopedic surgeon or you were not one of the co-founders of TriMed, what do you think you would be doing in life? 
Well, actually, when I was in college, it was a choice of either being a physicist or going into medicine. So I think if I didn't go into medicine, I probably would have gone into physics and been working at some university somewhere. That was something that interested me. Having said that, it's hard for me to imagine living anywhere but Hawaii. I grew up on the East Coast, and I, but I've been out here for 40 years, and I love the people, the place, the weather's good. So I think I ended up in the in a good spot and in a good career. I can't complain. I've been very lucky in my life. Well, great. Well, thank you again, Dr. Medoff, for taking time out of your very busy schedule to come on and talk about fragment-specific fixation and, and TriMed. And we will hope to have you come on the podcast maybe again in the future. So again, thank you very much. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you very much. What he didn't say was uh, the case delayed the podcast but it's a six-hour delay, so what's 3 o'clock, 3.30 for me is 9.30 for Eric. So thank you for staying up late to talk to me. As we say in Hawaii, aloha and mahalo. Aloha. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Ortho Idea podcast. If you would like to learn more about the technologies discussed, please visit www.orthoidea.com.